Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk show. Recorded live. Thank you. 
Let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Thank you for this new day, for this new service. Thank you for the word that you're going to give today, Lord. We ask, Father, that you speak through me, that you speak to your people, that you speak to your church, and that you will bring deliverance and salvation and healing to your body. We ask, Father, that your will be done in this and in all things of this ministry and of this congregation around the world. We ask, Father, that your will prevail in your body, in your church, in your people, in your will, Lord, in our arms. We ask you, Father, to help us to surrender to you even more than what we have already so that the carnality, sinfulness, wrongful things may be consumed out of us, that we may become closer to you, feel your presence stronger, hear your voice stronger, recognize your voice better, and fulfill our destinies in you. That we would establish your kingdom upon this earth, that we would not seek our own glory, but rather to exalt you and your kingdom. We ask, Father, for your special help in this service today and for your protection and help for the body of Christ today in every location, that as they gather together in your name, that you would be in their midst, protect them and cover them from the enemy, and let not the enemy hear their prayers, but that their prayers be private unto you, that the enemy will not be able to intercept communication, not use it against us, but that our prayers be not hindered, but go directly to your throne, Heavenly Father, and that when you send angels, when you dispatch angels, that they would not be hindered. We ask, Father, that you would strengthen the hand of the holy angels and of your church. Let us not be deceived. We ask, Father, your will be done. In Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. You may be seated. We're going to turn to Matthew 23. I encourage people to take notes if you can. If you want to, and if you can, I really encourage people to take notes. I really believe it helps. For the record, today's date is April the 7th, 2018 AD, in the year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in God's calendar, it is the 21st day of the 13th month. Before we get into the actual sermon today, I would like to repeat, or feel led, rather, to repeat something I've said several times over the years, but I can't never say it enough, is that I really encourage people that 
to read the Bible in the real Bible. When I say real Bible, I mean in a hardback copy, a paperback copy, rather than electronically. I know that it's easy to read the Bible electronically because you're on there already checking your emails, looking at the news, reading the newsletter, doing study, looking at Strong's Accordance and other things in the Internet. So it's easy just to go to the Bible right there electronically. But when you read the Bible electronically in the PDF or on eSword or any other electronic manner, you're really missing out. You really are. Because there's nothing that can match reading in the real Bible. Amen. When you read in the real Bible, you can glance across both pages and see much more of the context, much more words, and your eyes can be led by God to a different verse all the way on the other side of the page, all the way to the bottom of the other side of the page, which is impossible electronically or at least more difficult electronically for you to see as much of the page or as much as, as much as two pages at a time. And over my experience as being a guy that's almost 50 years old, having read the Bible since I was 10, I can tell you that the times that God has revealed things to me when I was reading the real Bible are many, many, many times more often than when I was reading something electronically. Amen? There is just power in the actual scrolls, in the actual paperbacks, than what there is electronically. Especially when you remember that the way that mankind uses electricity, which is computers, internet, these, the lights in our ceiling, and all these electronical devices and Wi-Fi and internet, computers and all that, is actually of an evil source. Amen. I know that all these things can be good. I love the heat of an electric heater. I love the convenience that comes with electricity. And I know that I use electricity and the Internet to do the ministry, to do the work of the kingdom. But overall, overall, what has electricity done to mankind? Much, much, much more evil than good. It would actually be healthier and better for mankind to not have electricity. We've only had electricity for, what, 100 and some years, 110, 150 years at most maybe. And out of thousands of years, mankind did perfectly well without the convenience, without the microwave society, without the Internet, without electricity, without artificial lights, mankind did fine. Mankind survived, and mankind was stronger for it. Men were men, and women were women. But now with the electric, there's more temptation, distribution of evil, pornography, and little children 
being sexually abused because of the Internet more than ever before out of all of human history and so forth and all kinds of other corruptions. We cannot ignore the what? What was the name of the company, IBM or whoever it was that helped Hitler to give a number to every one of the, the, the Jews and other people that Hitler uh, enslaved. I think it was IBM or one of those companies that back then, one of the first computer companies that there was, was instrumental in helping Hitler. And so was the Ford Motor Company and other electric electric companies and car companies, automotive companies, and so forth. We cannot deny these things nor ignore these things. When mankind loses all automobiles and all electric, it will be a great deliverance for mankind. It will be a great deliverance. So if we look at how electric has really corrupted mankind, why would you, why should we then read the Bible electronically? It is better to read it in the paperback so that you know where the books are. How are you going to learn where the books are if you can just click on a button and go immediately from Genesis to um, Chronicles or Kings or Songs, and you, you're not learning that way the order of the books. And we need to know, as Christians, as witnesses, we need to know the order of the books by heart. You don't have to be able to list every one of them in perfect order. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, when your family member or friend or stranger asks you a biblical question and you need the answer from the Bible to show them and it takes you 10 minutes to find that book of the Bible, that's not a good example. Amen? That's not a good example. If we're claiming to know the truth or claiming to know the Bible, then we need to be able to turn quickly to the, at least that book, at least, if not the chapter and the verse, but at least that particular book quickly. And reading the Bible electronically is not going to teach us how to do that. Plus, in the paperbacks, we can make notes, underline things. I know you can do all this on the e-sword as well. But one of these days, we're going to lose that e-sword, most likely. We will, even if we take extra batteries with us into the wilderness to run our laptops or whatever, we'll probably still lose it eventually before the tribulation is over with. We'll probably have to use those batteries for something else that's more important than looking at an electronic file. We need the paperbacks, and we need to learn the paperbacks and use the paperbacks. It's so much more edifying, so much more helpful, and you will grow in the Holy Ghost faster and quicker and easier by reading the real Bible rather than the electronic versions. But the reason that we're doing the E-Sword 
is that uh, more people will learn about the Alpha and Omega Bible and to help you in your studies and comparisons. It is not for the purpose of you reading the Bible on a daily basis electronically. That's not the purpose. The purpose is more people to learn about the most accurate translation, to get it out there to the people, and then help with studying in different ways that eSource can help, but it is not for your daily reading. It is for studying and letting more people know about it. So that's not the sermon, but I really felt led to share that and encourage people to read the real Bible. It will really, really help you. Now on to the sermon today. The title is Exalt Not the Self. Exalt Not Yourself. This is simple, this is basic, this is elementary doctrine. It's so fundamental and foundational, and it's common sense as well. But it's still an area that a lot of people deal with, have to deal with, need to deal with. It really is. And I can go in any congregation, any congregation, anywhere, in Babylon or even among the true followers, of Jesus and just look upon a person and say that person is filled and overflowing with pride and vanity. So easy. I think any of us could do that, really. Some more than others and especially some people that you look at more than others. And some of us can do that more than others. But I think we can all do that to some extent. And as you continue to grow in Christ Jesus, you'll be able to do that even more, to have more spiritual discernment, to be able to look at people and look at things and just get an instant, instant record of the facts of reality. Amen. And so it's a common problem. It exists. At any congregation, I could go out there tomorrow on a Sunday. If I was to go to five churches tomorrow, I could find at least one person. Every congregation that is overflowing, but sometimes with pride or vanity. But sometimes it's not so evident. Sometimes it's more hidden. They may actually appear humble, act humble. But somewhere in their life, there is some kind of self-glorification, self-exalting that is not as evident, and it still must be worked on. As we again approach the days of Passover and days of unleavened bread, we all should be examining ourselves, finding those crumbs as we do our spring cleaning, looking under the couch, looking in between the cushions of our heart, looking for hidden sins, secret sins, and sins that are subconscious that we may not realize, deeply examining ourselves. And the truth is, I believe that all of us have some measure, some measure of wrongful pride. I think every one of us do. At least most of us, a large majority of us, have at least a little, at least a little bit of wrongful pride. So it's something I think that all of us should work on. We have to Humble ourselves and exalt God. Let's look at Matthew 23. 
Matthew 23, starting in verse 11. Matthew 23, verse 11. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Amen. So in verse 11 again, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The word minister means servant. It can be translated that in each, in each case. So a minister, a pastor, an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a teacher, is somebody that serves the congregation. They may be a leader. They may have authority. They may be in the administration of the church. But what is their job? Their job is to serve the people, to help the people, to be a servant to the people, to be a servant to the widows and the orphans and to those that are seeking the truth, to answer questions, to counsel, to minister, to help people in every possible way, financially, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, in every aspect. A minister's job is to serve the people. And even so much more, the higher they get in the rank of the church, so much more that they should be serving the people in one way or another. And some things may be delegated to people, but they're still serving people by doing a delegation. They can't do everything personally, face-to-face, but they can delegate some of the responsibilities, some of the work, some of the duties, but even through delegation, they're still making for sure that the needs of the people are met. Amen. And in verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, meaning by God that if we humble ourselves, that God will, in time, as other scriptures say, and in due time, he will reward us and uh, promote us as well as reward us. Even publicly, he will. If we pray in secret, he'll reward us in the wolfing, as both publicly and secretly and publicly reward us in due time. Let's go to Ezekiel 28 in the book of Prophets. Ezekiel was a prophet. So is Isaiah and Daniel. So we know that Ezekiel would be in the book of Prophets because Ezekiel was a prophet. Ezekiel was warning the people of coming war and invasion. Ezekiel 28. But Ezekiel did not just warn about war and invasion, but he also spoke what God said about past events 
as well. Part of prophecy is not just speaking what's going to happen in the future. A lot of people don't understand that. The prophecy is not just what's going to happen tomorrow or 10 years or 100 years from now, but also sharing with people, teaching with people the meaning of what has already happened. That's actually part of a prophetic ministry is after a event happens to explain it, why it happened, what it represents, what was the symbolism in it. That is prophetic as well. In Ezekiel 28 verse 1, uh, we're going to make some corrections in some of these verses, so have your ink pen ready. In verse 1 it says, the word of Jesus came to me saying, and you, son of man, say to the prince, of Tyrus or Lebanon, Syria. Thus saith Jesus, because your heart has been exalted. So Jesus gives a message to Ezekiel to say to the king of Syria, your heart has been exalted. And you have said, I am Theos. I have inhabited the dwelling of Theos. That word dwelling needs to be changed to seat. I have inhabited the seat of Theos. Alpha and Omega. In the heart of the sea, meaning in the Mediterranean Sea, in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, meaning in the land of the Middle East, meaning Lebanon, Syria. And you are, it says man, but we need to change the word man to mortal. Mortal, M-O-R-T-A-L. I just come to realize today that the Greek word that man, that means Humanity or people can, in some instances, such as this one, be translated as mortal. And if you glance quickly to verse 9, we'll go back up and read all this again, but verse 9, will you indeed say, I am Theos, before them that slay you, whereas you are mortal and not Theos? The word mortal in this verse 9 is the same Greek word as man in verse 2. And it is the word that is usually translated as humans or people or mankind or humanity. But in the context, it's talking about Satan. That's what it's talking about as we read this and as you will continue to read this. It becomes real, real, real clear. There's talking about Satan. Or and his other fallen angels. These are not talking about humans. And this king of Syria is not a human. Amen. Ezekiel 28, for those that just joined us, Ezekiel 28. And because we know it's talking about Satan, and because we know it's talking about the son of perdition, Assad, he's the king of Syria, it's not talking about humans. So in the context, it needs to be translated as mortal. So I'm just learning 
this today. And most Greek scholars do not even know this. People who have gone to college, people who are teaching Greek in a professional level in colleges and universities, and even people who uh, have translated the Bible for King James and New American Standard and NIV and all these so-called experts do not know this because they don't go by context as much as they need to go by. Amen? They go by tradition. The tradition is to translate it as man, but it's not talking about a human. So we have to leave tradition and go by context. Then, then we learn from the Bible. Then we learn what the agent Greek and the agent Paleo-Hebrew languages really did mean, what they really said, what they really was teaching. So we have to step aside from so-called knowledge, as the Bible says, so-called knowledge of these so-called experts who think they know what they're talking about and they don't because they don't allow the Bible, the Bible to teach them. They've just been taught by some men or some woman at some college, some university, or some book written by man. And because they read it in some book or some professor, they continue the tradition decade after decade of teaching false things. They never learn truth. They never grow in the truth that way. Amen. We have to allow the Bible to teach us. And by looking at the context, we learn the meaning of agent language without even going to college by reading the wonderful word that has been given to us through Ezekiel from God. Amen. Going back to verse 2, back to the beginning of the verse, and you, son of man, here he's talking to Ezekiel, so man there actually would be man or humanity. And I think even better translation would be son of humans for that particular phrase. You can change it or leave it. don't matter. It's fine. But it's the same Greek word. But because he's talking to a human, Ezekiel, then in that case, in that context, it really is son of humans, son of humanity, son of mankind. Say to the prince of Tyrus, the prince of Syria or king of Syria, leader of Syria, Thus say of Jesus, because your heart has been exalted, and you have said that I am that you are Theos. It's what you said, I am Theos. I have inhabited the seat of Theos in the heart of the sea. Yet you are mortal and not Theos, though that you have set your heart as the heart of Theos. Are you wiser than Daniel? Or have not the wise instructed you with their knowledge? Have you gained power for yourself by your own knowledge or your own prudence and gotten gold and silver in your treasures? When I read this verse, I think of Daniel, the book of Daniel, which he mentions there for a reason. Amen. Because this could be talking about Nebuchadnezzar. I believe some people may even say it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and it may be. But 
different kings, different people, leaders throughout humanity have actually been the same fallen angel possessing people or manifesting in a human appearance or even truly being inside a human many times throughout history, the same demons doing that. So if we think of Nebuchadnezzar, remember in the book of Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar was ordained by God to invade Israel and become the king of Babylon, including the Israeli captives, and had a lot of land. He had a lot of land. He had a lot of power and authority, rulership, and Nebuchadnezzar became vain, proudful. He, he started saying that he had obtained this great kingdom by his knowledge, by his skill, his knowledge, his ability, and his strength and his power. But God corrected him and made him walk or crawl on the ground for how long? Seven years, right? Yes, seven years as a beast, as an animal on the surface of the earth, eating grass, scavenging for food as an animal, as a beast. Nebuchadnezzar was transformed from human to an animal until the day came that Nebuchadnezzar, as an animal, said within himself that he was wrong and that God had given him the kingdom. It wasn't of his own skill or ability, but it had had been God that had given him that kingdom. And now he's an animal. And once he confessed that and repented and gave God the glory, he was changed back into a human form. And he gave God the glory, told about what had happened, and praised the Alpha and Omega. That particular account may be hard to believe, but if you think about how that God created the sun and the moon and the planet Earth, Jupiter, and all the other planets and all the stars in the sky, how huge this universe is, and he created all the plants, all the food, the fruits, the vegetables, spiders, bees, ants, elephants, zebras, grass, gorillas, and humanity. If you think about what he has done, how majestic and awesome that it is, (laughs) making a man fall on the ground for seven years is nothing compared to everything else he has done. Amen. Nothing is too hard for the Lord, the scriptures say. Amen. He is God. He can do anything. Anything. Amen. So, this scripture here, I believe, could be talking about Nebuchadnezzar 
but it could it is also talking about other kings because it's prophecy remember is dual has more than one meaning you have the literal meaning you have the symbolic meaning you have foreshadowings and you have the primary fulfillment so this has happened to different men about them being kings but yet being demon possessed or even truly being demons and appearing in the flesh both of these different types of things have occurred multiple times upon the earth. Continuing to read here in verse 5, by your abundant knowledge and your traffic, that word traffic needs to be changed to trade, your trade. By your abundant knowledge and your trade, you have multiplied your power. Your heart has been lifted up by your power. Therefore, thus saith Jesus, since you have set your heart as the heart of Theos, because of this, behold, I will bring on you strange plagues from the nations, and they shall draw their swords against you and against the beauty of your knowledge. And they shall bring down your beauty to destruction, and they shall bring you down, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the sea. Will you indeed say, I am Theos, before them that slay you, whereas you are mortal and not Theos? Now, remember, the word mortal does not mean necessarily the same as human. It just means that you can die. That's all it means. Mortal is the opposite of immortal. An immortal being, which is only God, the Scriptures, New Testament, says, the only Jesus, so it says only, is, is immortal. That proves he's God right there. Only, only Jesus is immortal. So there's not a second immortal being. There's not a second immortal being. Only Jesus. I believe that's in Timothy. You can look it up. So immortal Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, says that we are mortal and this mortal must put on immortality. Babylon teaches that we are already immortal. Babylon, the Baptist church, Lutheran, Catholic, so forth, all those teach that we are all immortal, that we have an immortal soul, and that every one of us, regardless of how righteous or how wicked you are, that every person will live forever and ever. Every one of us. That's what they teach. And yet the scriptures say that only Jesus is immortal. (laughs) The Bible proves them wrong. Amen. We are not immortal, but the mortal must put on the immortality and the corruptible must put on the incorruptible. We must be changed from flesh, from mortal to immortal. But in this context, this mortal is not only a human king, but also a spiritual being, a fallen angel who inhabits him, who inhabits that flesh. So again, this mortal only means that he is capable of dying. 
doesn't mean he's human fully. It means that he is capable of dying, that he can be destroyed in the lake of fog. Verse 10, you shall perish by the hands of strangers among the multitude of the uncircumcised, for I have spoken it, saith Jesus. And the word of Jesus came to me, saying, Son of mankind, take up a lamentation or crying or wailing for the prince of Tyre or Syria or Lebanon and say to him, Thus saith the Lord Jesus, you are a seal of resemblance, a crown of beauty. You were in the delight of the paradise of fields. You were in paradise, the Garden of Eden. This was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. This is who he is talking to. You have bound upon you ever precious stone, the cyrus, the topaz, the emerald, comfortable, sapphire, the jasper, the silver, the gold, the gyre, whatever mineral that is, the agate, the amorous, the chrysotite, the merle, the onox, and you have filled your treasures and your stores, your storehouses, in you with gold. From the day that you were created, you were with the cherub or among the cherub. I set you on the holy mountain of Theos. You were in the midst of the stones of fire. Stones of fire is talking about stars and planets. If you want to put that beside it, you can if you want. That's what it's talking about, stars and planets. So this was a spiritual creature that was among the creation and that walked among the planets or flew among the planets. Verse 15, you were faultless or perfect in your days from the day that you were created until breaking the law, iniquity, transgression of the law, iniquity, sin, was found in you. Now, he was created perfect without fault. But, of, of Satan's own accord, of his own choosing, of his own mind, sin became present in the devil. Verse 16, of the abundance of your merchandise, you have filled your storehouses with iniquity and have sinned. Therefore, you have been cast down, cast him down to Satan, cast down wounded from the mountain of Theos, or government of God. The word mountain in prophecy, whether it's past prophecy or future prophecy, in prophetic language or historical language, that the word mountain is symbolic of government. Being cast down from the mountain doesn't mean he was cast down from Mount Everest, but rather from the government or from the empire or kingdom of God. And the cherub, the angels, has brought you out of the midst of the planets, the stones of fire. Your heart has been lifted up because of your beauty. It was because of the devil's beauty, how bright he was, shiny he was, like a man looking at himself in the mirror or a woman looking at herself in the mirror, and like a lot of these women putting on makeup every day in the mirror to 
glamorize themselves and look beautiful and attractive to other people and attractive to themselves and, and so forth. It's vanity. Vanity. We have to be careful about vanity. Amen. We want to look decent. We want to look presentable to people. But we have to be careful about trying to exalt ourselves with makeup and all kinds of jewelry and everything like that. Your knowledge has been corrupted with your beauty. Because of the multitude of your sins, I have cast you to the ground out of heaven. I've cast you to the ground. I have caused you to be put to whoop and shame before kings. Because of the multitude of your sins and the iniquities of your merchandise, it brings that up again, trade and merchandise and merchandise. So it's being materialistic. It's being materialistic. The devil wasn't satisfied with just power or just beauty or the responsibilities that God had given him. But he wanted more, and he wanted the gold and the silver and all those minerals and stones. And he wanted it for himself, not to share it with others, not to share it with God, not to share it with other angels or the kingdom or other citizens of the kingdom. But he wanted these things for himself. He became materialistic and wanting physical, beautiful things, wanting those things, wanting the riches of the physical creation. And it says that in verse 18, because of the multitude of your sins and the iniquities of your merchandise, you defiled or violated, meaning halal, the temple. You defiled the temple of God. You violated the temple of God. Amen. Michael, can I have you lock the front door real quick, please? Thanks. And I will bring fire from your midst. This shall devour you. The lake of fire will devour. We'll devour. We'll kill the devil. The devil will not live forever. Amen. Do you know what Babylon says, though? Babylon says that the devil will live forever in hell with the wicked, poking people with a, a big, long fork. That's what they say. That's what they teach. That's insanity. That's a looney tune. That's a fairy tale. Amen. It's actually in Yeah, it's insane. They're, they're exalting the devil. Babylon exalts the devil to be immortal like God. They're making the devil out to be God. And they're making sinners out to be God, saying that sinners are immortal. It's ridiculous. And it says here, I will bring fire from your midst, you shall devour you, and I will make you to be ashes upon the earth before all that see you. Now, that word ashes could be symbolic to make you like 
ashes because this is dealing with a fallen angel. We've got to remember not to take the Bible too literal all the time. If you take the Bible literal all the time, then we about to be expecting a dinosaur of ten heads to come up out of the ocean, right? Can't take the Bible literal all times. Sometimes it's got to be literal, absolutely, sometimes symbolic. And the Bible talks in a symbolic fashion a whole lot. And we know this is Satan is talking about. It's clear as day. It's obvious. The devil is not going to be ashes. But he is going to be like ashes, even if they don't use that word like. It don't have to be there. It's not there. It don't have to be there. We have to understand the spirit of the law, the spirit of what it's saying, the principle of what it's saying, the spiritual principle of what is being taught. Not the letter ABC, the exact letter, but what it's trying to say. And the exact, what it's trying to say is the devil will be destroyed, totally destroyed. Amen. Verse 19, and all that they know you among the nations have grown over you or mourn over you and you are gone to destruction and you shall not exist. Any more. Amen. Amen. Now, anybody will tell you different religions, different churches, different scholars, pretty much all agree it's talking about the devil in these verses. But yet, at the same time, it was somebody that looked like a human king. And I believe that more than anything else is talking about both the devil and Assad as well. But what we can learn about this is that we must be careful about being vain about our looks and not be too materialistic, not be pursuing riches, and not be pursuing our own exaltation or our own glory, but rather to keep ourselves humble. And we have to work on that. It takes work. It really does. We have to work at being humble. We have to watch our thoughts and control our thoughts because vanity can creep in really, really easy. Especially, for example, uh, guys, when we're working out, when we're trying to build muscle, that, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with men lifting weights and trying to build muscle and trying to grow strength. Nothing wrong with that, especially in this day and time, because back in ancient years, men were more muscular and much more strong. But in modern times, we sit at a computer all day, and we're not getting any exercise or any strengthening of our body, and we have to lift weights in order to get any strength upon our body. So this is not wrong to do. But at the same time, we have to be careful about it because it can increase vanity if we start looking at ourselves in the mirror too much and stuff like that, or trying to be Hercules or 
trying to be Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and stuff like that, it can go too far. And there's nothing wrong with a woman wearing a bracelet or a necklace. There's nothing wrong with a man giving his wife a wedding ring or a bracelet or something to help beautify her or decorate her to make her feel good and to give her a gift and make her feel effeminate. Nothing wrong with these things. But when people start wasting money on expensive jewelry instead of buying Bibles, nothing's wrong with that. Amen. Our priority needs to be the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God. We are here as the body of Christ to exalt his kingdom and the beauty of his kingdom and the power and the authority of his kingdom. Amen. So we have to be careful about not wasting money on glamorous things. That's what it's talking about in the book of Ephesians, I think it is. Where it's talking about braided hair and gold apparel and all this, that we're to dress moderately. And it has nothing to do with how much skin shows on your body. It has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with buying cheap things rather than expensive things because our money should be invested in the kingdom and not upon making the body look beautiful or standing out among the congregation or standing out among humanity. We should not be exalting our beauty in those ways. Amen. So we have to be careful about these things because we can buy one thing that's cheap and like it and say, you know what, I want something a little bit more sparkly, a little bit something more higher quality, something a little bit more expensive, and then more expensive the next time, then more expensive the next time. And we can get carried away with those things. So we have to be careful. Amen. You know what the devil should have done, of course, was to have been content and satisfied with the power and authority that he had been given. Amen. He was an assistant to God. He was a covering cherub. He was an archangel. He wasn't just any angel. He was an archangel. He was at the very throne of God, right beside God. He was like a vice president, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for the devil. He wanted the throne of God for himself. That's wrong, amen. That's wrong. He should have been content with where he was. And I have seen this so many times, so many times, I couldn't count. When people had it made, and they wasn't content. It wasn't enough for them. They had enough money to get by. Hey, they wasn't rich, but they had enough to get by. They were eating well, doing well, good place to live. But then they wasn't content, and they had to pursue more, and it got them in trouble. And then again and again and again, over and over, over and over, the same person. Getting in trouble and then getting out of that trouble, getting back on their feet again, getting established again, and doing well, 
and but not being content with it. Trying to get more and then get in trouble again. Get out of that trouble. Start doing well again. Over and over, a vicious cycle over and over. I have seen this. Let's go to John 16 and New Testament. Look at John. John 16. So we need to all be content. And I think that's in Timothy as well, that we are to be content with clothing that we have. We might need another pair of underwear. We might need another pair of pants that fit more well. That's okay. But let's not covet the most expensive clothing, the Jordashes and all this and the Nikes and all that. Let's be satisfied with the $35 tennis shoes rather than the $100 pair of tennis shoes. It's ridiculous to pay $100 for a pair of shoes. Come on. Ridiculous. But some people think they have to have the very, very, very best and nothing less. The way people are about jobs as well. They would never work at Burger King, never work at Hardee's, never work at Wendy's, never work in fast food or any restaurant because they're too good for that. Too good for that. It's vanity and pride. Amen. They're missing out on a whole lot because you can really build your character with hard work. Amen. John 16, starting in verse 13, John 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, that's the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Ghost, when he comes, he will guide you into all of the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative or of himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Prophecy. What's going to happen in the future? Amen. This is Jesus before the crucifixion speaking of his own Holy Ghost that would be uh, given to mankind later on after the crucifixion when he breathed upon the disciples and then again on the day of Pentecost. And he speaks of himself in the third person. But this was very common, very common. In even the 1600s, and even so much more back in Jesus' day and in Old Testament times, that authors, people writing, and kings, and people in general would speak of themselves in the third person. So, speaking of himself in the third person, in other words, speaking of himself as if he was another person, was nothing strange, nothing unusual, and does not prove. That he's speaking of another, another being, another God. It does not prove that at all, because it was common all the way up to just 400 years ago, for people to speak of themselves in the third person in a way that sounds like they're talking about another person. So again, you can't go by the letter. It says he. It says he. It says he as if it's another person. You can't go by the letter. You have to go by the Spirit. And if you read all the Scripture, 
the spirit agrees that there is one God. Amen. But what he's saying here, the spiritual principle of what he's saying is instead of him speaking of himself, he's giving glory to the greater measure of the Father in heaven. Even when, after he dies, and he walked on earth for another 40 days, he had just risen from the dead, he could have really, really, really glorified himself in those 40 days. He could have said, ha ha, death is defeated, I'm powerful, I'm wonderful, I'm beautiful, and I am Hercules, and I am God, and I am going to reign this earth right here and right now. Jesus could have said that. He had the power to do it. He had the ability to do it, but he didn't. He could have risen from that grave and said, okay, I'm going to establish the fullness of the kingdom upon this earth right here, right now, regardless of the plan that had already been established by the greater measure of himself that stayed in heaven. Jesus at any time before or after the resurrection could have seized the kingdom for himself. When he inserted part of himself into the human bloodline, he did become another manifestation. He was the same soul, the same spirit, the same being, but at the same time, he did become a second manifestation in the flesh, and he could have rebelled against the Father. He could have. It was not impossible. At any time, he could have sinned. He could. He could have committed adultery. He could have cursed. He could have went around as a drunk. He could have become an alcoholic. The Bible says he was tempted in every way. Tempted in every way. He was tempted. Jesus was tempted with homosexuality and with alcoholism, and with adultery, and with murder, and with stealing, and with lying. He could. It's not impossible. He was in the flesh, and he had emptied himself out, the Bible says, into the flesh. He humbled himself. He even left a lot of his knowledge in heaven. He didn't even know the date of his own return, but the Father did already in that day and in that time already know the date of his return. But Jesus didn't because he emptied himself out and humbled himself as a servant. The Bible says that he came as a suffering servant in order to die for our sins. He came as a lamb. He didn't come as a lion. He came as a lamb to die, to be sacrificed, to be slaughtered, 
be spit upon and slapped and pierced by his own children, his own creation. At any time, he could have said, I've had enough of this, and I'm going my own way, separate from the Father's will. He, he even did pray, Father, let this not happen to me. He even thought about backing out. He was tempted with backing out. He even prayed, don't let this happen to me. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to die. Because he was in the flesh. But then he said, not my will, but your will. If this is what you want, if this is the plan, I'm not going to stray from the plan. I'm going to go through with what you have ordained, what you have instructed, what you have planned. This ain't about this human flesh. This ain't about my muscles, my toes, my fingers, my face, my beauty, my strength, my skill, my talents, my name, as far as separate from the Holy Spirit, as far as being separate from the Holy Spirit. This ain't about, he could have said, I want you to seize it for myself. But he did. He stuck with the plan and continued and continued and continued all the way to the death to give the glory to the Father, even though he was the Father, but he was in the flesh. And the flesh was not the Father. The flesh was created. But Jesus was never created. His toes were created. His muscles were created. His flesh and blood was created. But that soul inside Jesus was not created. It had always existed. It had been with the Father from the beginning. Amen. He came from heaven. But that flesh could have rebelled. That, that flesh could have said, I like being in the flesh, and I'm going to stay in the flesh, and I might even pop out of the flesh. You could have even done that. And being like Satan, he could have been exactly, he could have been the second Satan. It's not impossible. But we know that Jesus humbled himself to the greater measure of his spirit. Amen. This is a beautiful thing. Amen. There was a plan. Amen. There was a plan. And he stuck with the plan because if he had not stuck with the plan, we would all have no hope, no salvation. Amen. He stuck with the original plan. God has see it through to the end. And he taught us a lesson through that. For us to not exalt ourselves, but to stick with the overall goal, the overall plan. It's not about us. And you know what? It's not even about only us getting into the kingdom. Of course, we do want to get into the kingdom individually. I want to get into the kingdom. You want to get into the kingdom. But it's not just about that. It's also about getting other people in the kingdom. 
and it's about establishing God's kingdom upon this earth. It's so much more than ourselves. We are not the main characters in this movie. We're not the main characters in this book or in history. And it doesn't matter whether our names will be remembered among humanity. It doesn't matter whether we're going to have um, a star on Broadway like Trump has and all the other, or in Hollywood, wherever that walkway is. It doesn't matter whether our names are written in stone among humanity. Amen. It's about the Father and his kingdom, and we want to be there with him. Let's look at chapter 8, John chapter 8. Verse 49. John 8, 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. He was given honor to the Father. A lot of people read this and use this to try to say Jesus is not God. But to say that Jesus is not God, you have to ignore lots and lots and lots of verses, including the one that says Jesus is the only immortal. And where Jesus himself said, that, that we will be his sons, that he will be our father to us. He said that in Revelation. And many, many other verses we would have to ignore. So you can't go just by this verse. You have to go by the entire Bible and balance it out. You have to balance the Bible, amen, taking all verses into consideration. But the point that we learn from this is he still gives the father, the father of the glory, and he's not seeking his own glory, his own fame, or his own kingdom, or his own skill, or knowledge, or riches, or anything. He came to finish the plan, or to do the next step of the plan, in what had been planned, uh, 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 even within in his own soul while he was still yet in heaven. Amen. Now let's look at chapter 7, verse 15. 7, 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Amen. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus didn't have a college degree. He never went to a university. And if it hadn't been for the miracles, he would have not even been well known to this day. 
So it wasn't by human skill that he was the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one, how and where and when, the physical flesh that God had chosen to put himself into that particular woman that he chose among all of humanity. It wasn't because of any physical strength that he had or any physical beauty that he had. The scriptures say that he was nothing to look upon. And some people think that means that after he had been beaten up, that he was nothing to look upon, that he was had all those scars and bleeding and flesh torn apart. But it's possible that it means even before that, that he was nothing to look upon, that he wasn't a handsome, a handsome guy. I don't believe he was handsome. I believe that he probably chose to humble himself in the flesh and give himself a, a humble appearance. I believe that he would not have come as the most handsome man on earth. I believe he would have come as a regular-looking Joe. Amen. And he didn't go to college or have a great education. It doesn't take human education to be ordained by God. Amen? Some churches require their ministers to go to college, a college of their religion. The Baptist church has their own colleges. Methodist church has their own colleges and so forth. Catholic church has their own colleges to send their ministers. And you have to get a degree. You have to get an education. You have to be educated to, in order to even teach, in order to even minister. And what do they teach them there but nothing but lies? Amen. False doctrine. Instead of them learning from the Bible itself. Amen. We know that God chooses the underdog. He doesn't choose the rich or the famous or the powerful or the well-educated. God chooses the underdog. We think of David, how he was probably the smallest and definitely the youngest of, of seven men, seven brothers. And when Samuel came to anoint David as king, went into David's dad's house and asking for the boys to be lined up to see where this king was to anoint, to make him the next king of Israel, the dad thought, well, surely it would be this tallest guy, this most muscular, this strongest, this best guy in his eyes. But no, it wasn't him. Then the next one and the next one, he went through all those six boys and Samuel said, it ain't none of these boys. Surely you've got another one somewhere. And the dad finally said, well, <laughs> the little David out there in the field, we got him out there slaving, working. Surely it can't be him. Samuel said, fetch him. Mm-hmm. When he came into the room, Samuel said, this is the one. God chooses the underdog. And I think that's beautiful that God does that. Amen. And if God has chosen the 
the uneducated, even in Jesus, uneducated, then we need to be careful about judging people based upon their education, whether they went to school, whether they went to high school, what was the last school uh, grade they finished, how their talking skills are. Those things are not important to God, and they should not be important to us. Amen? It's not about how well you speak or how well somebody else speaks or how educated someone is. God could have chosen uh, somebody that knows Greek much more than I know Greek to do the Alpha and Omega Bible. Amen? I know a few Greek words. I'm learning more and more Greek words. But man, I have never taken a course in the Greek language. Never learned that in college, went to college at all. And the last grade I finished, I'm going to give the devil some ammunition against me, but I don't care. The last grade I finished was the ninth grade. Never graduated high school. I could have by my grade levels, but I chose not to finish high school because I had a lot going on in my life, and I was working full-time and started partying and everything else and decided to do other things rather than finish this useless schooling that I hated so much. So I made a decision, and I don't regret it a bit. And many times I could have went and got a GED, but I never felt a need to get it in order to prove to somebody else or to myself through a piece of paper from mankind saying I'm so smart or so skilled or something along those lines, I felt never felt a need for that accreditation of somebody else, some organization, some school, or some piece of paper. I never felt that need and never needed it, never did really need it. But God could have called Somebody that knows Greek very, very, very well, well-educated, somebody with better finances, more money, to do the Alpha and Omega Bible, and would have the money to get it out there with a, a, a big publisher, like all the other Bibles out there with big publishers, and get it out there on every bookshelf. But God chose the underdog and the uneducated and the unskilled. Amen. It wasn't because of any strength or skill or ability of mine that God chose me. It was only by the mercy and the grace and the plan of God that he chose me and nothing else. Amen. I should never allow myself to think or to say that I am so good that this is the reason that God has called me to do this because of a certain skill or ability. Because if I allow myself to do that, then I'm allowing vanity, pride to creep into me, and it will take control of me if I do not squash it out. So I have to be careful not to let it enter into me, even to begin with, for a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It takes control. Amen. So we have to make sure not to give the devil an inch 
Because if you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile and ten miles and a million miles before you know it. Amen. Let us, none of us, let none of us ever say that we're the only one that can do something. Let us never say that. Because there's always somebody out there with a greater skill, more knowledge, more education, more ability than what we have. There's rocket scientists, there's brain surgeons, there's doctors and lawyers, there's North Korean hackers and Russian hackers and Chinese hackers, and all kinds of people with skill and education that would be mind-blowing. Rocket scientists, people. There's always somebody with a greater ability and greater skill than what we have. So we have to be careful not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. To always be working at humbling ourselves and judging our words carefully before we say them, as we say them, and after we have said them. Amen. At the end of the day, as we lay down at night, let us review our words, what we have said to people, what we have thought among ourselves. And judge ourselves to see if there be any iniquity in us. Did we exalt the Father or did we exalt ourselves? And did we do right or did we do wrong? We have to judge our words and our heart, our spirits, our souls, and our actions about everything we have said for that day. And always repent in every prayer. Always ask the Father to forgive us of our sins, those that we know about, those sins that we don't know about yet. And we need to be asking, praying for him to reveal our hidden sins, the sins that we don't know about yet. That's a brave prayer, a very bold prayer, to ask him to reveal to you the sins that you don't know yet, to teach you and to instruct you about how to do better. John 7 here, verse 15, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but he who has sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, God's will, he would know of the teaching, whether it is a field or if I speak it from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen? So we need to be seeking the glory of, the, of him that sent us and not our own glory. You may have noticed I don't know if you have or not. But in the Alpha and Omega Bible, in the copyright page, I say I give special thanks to, you know, Lisa and Kiki and Brittany and different ones, and I've added AJ and I've added Michael's name on that copyright page of the Alpha and Omega Bible, giving every one of you who are the core foundation of this ministry, core foundation of this congregation, credit for your help, your input. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
and I've chosen to not put my name on that page, I'm not listed as the author. I'm not listed as the publisher. But rather it says, I saw the light ministries on that page. And I saw the light ministries on the cover and on the binding and on the record of where it's published. So I saw the light ministries. I don't want to put my name on it like Joel Osteen does or Benny Hinn or Joyce Myers and all those people that are so well known by their name because that they name their ministries and their churches after themselves. I don't want to be like them. Amen. And it doesn't matter if anybody on this earth knows my name. The only thing that matters is that they find the accurate translation of the Bible and read it. And that is all that matters and that they be saved by reading it. And we need to be praying that, that people will be saved by reading the Alpha and Omega Bible. Amen. For these people that name their ministries after themselves, they are seeking their own glory. Amen. They're seeking their own glory. If they were seeking the glory of the Father, then they would name their ministry something else rather than after their own name. That is so obvious. That should be obvious to everybody on earth. But it's not because millions and millions and millions of people are glorifying those ministries, buying their books, sending them their money to exalt those ministries and increase those ministries' pockets and how many houses they own and how many cars they own. And that's exactly what is occurring. Amen. Instead of those ministers giving out Bibles, feeding the poor, helping people, they are filling their pockets with gold and silver. Materialistic self-exaltation, exactly what those rich television evangelists are all about. Not about the truth. It's not about salvation. It's about selling their merchandise, selling God, and filling their pockets with money. Amen. And this is also why there's so many churches in every street corner down here in the Bible Belt of America, the southeastern section of America. There is more churches here than what there is in the north or out in the west or out in the Midwest. Because here in the southeast of America, we call it the Bible Belt. People here are more biblically minded, more God-minded, more honorable, more respectable, kinder people. They really are. But nevertheless, there's a church on every corner, not just because of doctrine differences, not just because they disagreed with the church that they came out of, but rather they have established each man, each woman, each pastor has established their own church because they was not content with being a congregational member of the other church. And that's just the truth. They wasn't getting promoted fast enough. They wasn't being appointed as deacons yet. They wasn't being appointed as assistant pastor yet. And they said, I want my own church. 
I've seen this many times in my life. And they establish their own church, not based upon just denominational or doctrine differences, but because they wanted a church of their own. They wanted to be the head honcho. They wanted to be the leader and the pastor. Hey, sometimes this may be God's will, but more often than not, it is only self-glorification and self-exalting. Amen. And remember that the reason that we're here is not just to worship God, to sing and hear a sermon and to keep the commandments of the seventh day, but also to be a help and a service to other people, to hug other people while you're here, to listen to them, to be in the need. That means listen to them, to give them a shoulder to cry on, to give them an ear, somebody to listen to them, to be a help and a service to the church, to other people. And we need to be content where God has put us and be patient and be patient and be patient. But he that exalts himself will be humbled, but he that humbles himself will be exalted in due time and in due measure. Amen. We're all going to be exalted sooner or later, but until we get exalted, we must first learn how to serve. We must first learn how to be a servant and how to humble ourselves in every possible way. Let's go to Romans 12, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, starting in verse Romans 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And when we say sound judgment, in the context, it's not just wisdom or ability to judge, but in the context, it also really means, spiritually, it is meaning with a humble mind, is what it's really saying, with a humble mind, a sound judgment rather than a judgment based upon pride, a sound judgment as in a humble 
judgment or a humble ability or humble thinking. As Theos has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I'm a member of you. You are a member of me. Together we make up the body of Christ, the church. We are an institution. We are an organization. Amen. We're not 501c3, government approved, praise God, because we don't want the government controlling us, telling us what we can and cannot say. But we are an organization, not a corporative or a government or a legal organization. But nevertheless, we are a body, an organization of God's people, and we are team members. Amen. As I've said many times, different toes, different fingers, some are smaller than the others. Some have different responsibilities and offices, but we are working together as a team rather than establishing our own ministries, rather than glorifying ourselves or exalting ourselves and starting a new ministry or starting a new church or another place to have services separate from this one, but rather working together as a team, helping one another for the goal of the entire ministry, which means the goal of the entire kingdom. Amen. It says in verse 6, since we have spiritual empowerments or gifts, spiritual empowerments are different according to the grace given to us, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his servant, or he who teaches in his teaching, or who, he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality or sincerity, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. So all of that's in the context of not exalting ourselves, but working together as a team member for the common good and the higher goal. Amen. Let's go to the book of Exodus there in the law. Exodus 4 in the book of the law. Exodus 4, starting in verse 10. Exodus 4, verse 10. And Moses said to Jesus, I pray, Lord, that I have not been sufficient in former times. That word pray there really needs to be changed because he's not praying. The word, he's just, he's just speaking to 
Jesus and can be translated in many different ways. I think probably beseech is the best. It can be translated as ask or say or beseech. I think beseech is the best. And I beseech you, Lord, I have not been sufficient in former times. Moses has been very humble here. Hey, Moses had been a great prince of Egypt. He was famous even before God called him to uh, deliver the people. Moses was famous and rich and powerful in the kingdom of Egypt. That is known historically. But Moses says to the Lord, I've not been sufficient in formal things, formal times. He's humbling himself. He's not saying I'm a great man, but he's saying I've not done well. Neither from the time that you have begun to speak to your servant, I am weak in speech and slow tongue. Moses was not an eloquent, eloquent speaker. Some people say that Moses stumbled, mumbled, or uh, stuttered. We don't know for sure whether he stuttered or not, but it's very clear that he was saying that he was not a good speaker. He did not speak well. He would not have made a good he would not have made a good motivational speaker. And verse 11, and Jesus said to Moses, who has given a mouth to man and who has made the very hard of hearing and the deaf and the seeing and the blind? Have not I the else? And now go and I will open your mouth and will instruct you in what that you shall say. Moses said, I beseech you, Lord, appoint another able person whom that you shall send. And Jesus was greatly angered against Moses and said, Lo, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he will surely speak to you, and behold, he will come forth to meet you. And beholding you, he will rejoice within himself when he sees you. And you shall speak to him, and you shall put my words into his mouth, and I will open your mouth and his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you shall do. And he shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth. And you shall be for him in things pertaining to, to Theo. A lot of what Moses said to the people was not said directly by Moses. But through Aaron. Because Moses really did have a difficult time speaking. Even though he was rich, he was powerful, he was famous, and he was called by God. And he did great things, and he was chosen for great things. But he was not the best speaker. And he needed an assistant right beside him to help him in his weaknesses. And 
God sent Aaron, his brother, to help Moses with the speaking part. And I think that's a beautiful thing because, again, it shows God could use the, the someone even richer, somebody even more powerful. He could have chose Pharaoh himself instead of the prince, Moses. God could have chose the Pharaoh himself or a different Pharaoh or even Aaron as the main prophet. But God chose the one that was really the underdog in this situation as far as ability to speak. Amen. God chooses the underdog in other and in order to let it be known the source of the word of God, the source of the power, the source of the miracle, the source of the law, the source of the teaching the source of the Alpha and Omega Bible is not me, but is God himself. That by by choosing Moses, who could not speak well, it was made evident that it was truly God speaking these things, doing these things, and not Moses himself. Amen? He needed an assistant. He needed somebody to help him. It wasn't of his own skill or ability but it was God's words that had been given to these men. Amen? Now, of course, Aaron was in a particular situation because here Aaron is helping Moses. And Aaron could speak better, more eloquently, more accurately, had a greater skill in speech. This could have gone to Aaron's head, and he could have tried to push Moses aside or override Moses. And in fact, that did occur. Let's look at the book of Numbers. Numbers 12. Numbers chapter 12. Look in Numbers, Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And Miriam, who was Moses' sister and Aaron's sister, Miriam and Aaron, the brother and sister of Moses, spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian woman, a Gentile woman, who's Mo, who Moses took as a wife, for he had taken an Ethiopian woman. So the brother and sister of Moses speak against Moses for doing this. But there's no words in Scripture where God spoke against Moses for doing this. But that was against the law of God and what God had said. He said that let no Hebrew man take a Gentile woman as for his wife. That was the law of God given to Moses and Aaron. And Moses did this. But God never did in written scripture that we know of and that we have condemn Moses for doing that. 
but the brother and sister did. So the brother and sister took it upon themselves to judge Moses rather than allowing God to judge Moses. I believe it was fully acceptable for Moses to do that, even as God instructed Hosea to marry a adulterous woman that was also against the law to do, even as God did put it in the heart and mind of Samson to have sex with many, many, many women who were all Gentile, which was against the law. Each person has their own calling. Amen? We're all in a, we might be all a team, all one body, but nevertheless, we're all individuals as well. And each person has their own calling. And we have to be careful not to be over-condemning or over-judgmental of each other. But how, because how does any of us know what God has said to you? Amen? You can't hear God speaking to me. You, can't, you don't know what God has set in my heart or my mind or in my path. Amen? You can't wear my shoes. I can't wear your shoes. So we have to be careful about being over-condemning, over-judgmental. We have to be careful about things like that. And when we do think that somebody is in the wrong, we've got to pray about it first and even fast about it first before we confront that person. Amen. Especially if we're dealing with an elder, like Moses was their elder. If we're dealing with a pastor or elder person, then we have to be even more careful about trying to correct them. That don't mean you can't never correct them, but it means you've got to be careful about doing so and making sure that it really is uh, the right thing to do in that situation. So verse 2, they said, Has Jesus spoken to Moses only? Has he not also spoken to us? And Jesus heard it. In other words, they were saying this in their heart and in their mind, but Jesus heard it. And the man Moses was very meek or humble uh, beyond all the other men that were upon the earth. And Jesus was immediate, uh, said immediately to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come forth all three of you to the tabernacle of witness. That was the church tent. And the three came forth to the tabernacle of witness, and Jesus descended in a pillar of a cloud and stood at the door of the tabernacle. So they see this column of a cloud standing right there at the door of the church tent. Yeah. And stood at the door of the tabernacle of witness, and Aaron and Miriam were called, and both came forth. And he said to them, Hear my words. If there shall be of you a prophet to Jesus among you, I will be made known to him in a vision, and in, she, and in sleep will I speak, in other words, privately to him. I'm not going to speak it to you, Aaron, or to you, Marion. I'm going to speak it to Moses first. Then Moses will speak it to Aaron. Then Aaron speak it to the people. But God spoke it to Moses privately first. Then Moses share it with Aaron. Then Aaron relay it to the people. That's the way it would go. And that's what he's saying here, that I'm going to talk to Moses privately in a vision or in the sleep. And in verse 7, my servant Moses, let me write something down, I've got to tell you later. 
Verse 7, my servant Moses is not so. He is faithful in all my house. I will speak to him mouth to mouth. So in other words, God said that usually I would speak to the prophets in their sleep or in a vision. In other words, either through a dream or vision, usually. But Moses was different. With Moses, God did speak face to face with Moses, and mouth to mouth, apparently, and not in hidden speeches. That word dark needs to be changed to hidden. Hidden speeches. Verse 7. And he has seen the glory of Jesus. And why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the great anger of Jesus was upon them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam was leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, I beseech you, my Lord, do not lay sin upon us, for we were ignorant wherein that we sinned. Let her not be as it were like death, as an abortion coming out of his mother's womb or a stillbirth, when the disease devours the half of the flesh. And Moses cried to Jesus, saying, O Theos, I beseech you, heal her. And Jesus said to Moses, if her father had only spit in her face, would she not be ashamed seven days, meaning uh, not be able to see in public seven days? Let her be set apart seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she shall come in. And Miriam was separated outside the camp seven days, and the people moved not forward until Miriam was cleansed, healed. And purified. So we do see that Aaron and Miriam became a little conceited, saying, hey, we're the brothers, we're the sisters of this great prophet, we're great too, God speaks to us as well. And God does speak to everybody, amen? God speaks even to the sinners. He does. He's always, always constantly saying to the sinners, repent and come to me. And it's true that God can speak to anybody in the congregation, even out in Babylon. God can speak to ministers, false ministers, false prophets. He can work miracles to those people. He can even speak the truth through Babylon occasionally. But that doesn't mean that they're called of God for that particular office or administration. doesn't mean that they're part of the true church. And it doesn't mean that they're a true prophet just because they're working miracles. Amen? The devil can work miracles. We know that the son of perdition and the false prophet, they're, they're going to work great miracles. But magic does not prove that you are of God. Amen? But Miriam and Aaron got a little conceited among themselves, saying that God speaks to them too. And wrongfully condemned and wrongfully judged their elder 
and Miriam was punished for it. So Miriam must have been the worst of the two about the situation. And another thing that comes to mind is this. I believe that the Father has put into my mind in order to, for the edification of the church and instruction and help, is that, you know, thinking about how Moses was not eloquent in speech and how Jesus was uneducated and how God chooses the underdog and the unskilled in order to show that the source is actually God and not man, is that we also must be careful about over-condemning or over-judgmental about people if they have a, a, a problem with the way they talk, if they talk different from us, but also even on the Internet, that if a, if a website, if somebody writing an article on the Internet where they don't use the correct punctuation, where they're not using the commas right, or they capitalize in the middle of a sentence, or they misspell words, a lot of people tend to discredit the teaching based upon the punctuation and the spelling. And I've heard in my lifetime many different people throughout my life actually say that they're not going to believe a certain teaching or a certain website because of just that by itself. Not that the scripture was wrong, not that they were twisting scripture, not that the teaching was wrong or something else, but just because of misspellings on the page. And I don't think that's right because God can call the uneducated, God can call the unskilled person to speak the truth regardless. Amen. So I think we do have to be careful about that. God can call somebody that has uh, uh, what are these different names of uh, the AD AHD um, and then the other one, ADHD. AD, ADH. I can't not get these letters even when you're it's saying. Form of yeah. Autism. Oh, yeah, autism. As well. Yeah. I think that's different, but that's another situation. Oh, disability. Uh, yes. Yeah. God yeah. can call people with a mental disability, a physical disability, um, and God can call people uh, that has is it Down syndrome. Uh, you can have a Down syndrome preacher, a pastor, you know. God could call anybody, and they might not spell well or have English grammar well. And you don't have to have a great skill in order to be called by God. Amen. You can have what they call a disability and still be called by God or any of these situations. I think you get the point. So let's base whether or not we accept a teaching or a person, let's base it upon scripture, amen, and discernment, spiritual discernment, and not upon 
education and man's wisdom and man's ability and man's skill. Amen. It's based upon scripture and scripture alone and discernment about whether something is correct or true or false or not. Many times on the I Saw the Light Ministries website, um, sometimes you know how when you're typing or writing a letter and the word sounds just like another word and your mind just automatically writes it out how you spell the other word. It happens to all of us, and I think more so the more that you write. You know, if you're writing constantly like I am, it's going to happen because I'm constantly writing. And the mind plays tricks on you, and it just, and especially if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if it's late at night or something like that, the mind can just misspell a word. And it's not necessarily that I'm uneducated in that particular word, but just that my mind is playing tricks on me, and the mind just automatically inserts the other word. And not only that, but sometimes I choose on purpose to capitalize certain words, even in the middle of a sentence, that don't, should not, normally should not be capitalized. And that's because I'm trying to stress the holiness or the importance of that word, such as uh, always capitalizing the word holy, even outside of the phrase Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, but if I use it as, say, we should be holy, I capitalize holy. But it should not be capitalized because I don't care about man's rules. All I care about is that holy is holy, you know, and I want to stress it that it's special, that it's different. And some people may say, well, this person don't know what he's talking about because his skill of writing is not correct, therefore I'm not going to continue to read this website, and I know that people have done that. Over the past few months, I've been correcting a lot of these things on the website, even when it should not be corrected, because I've read that the Google search engine is now more and more and more actually looking at the capitalization and spelling within a website. And the Google search engine will lower the rank or lower the ability of the website to be seen by people based upon poor capitalization or wrong capitalization and misspellings within the website. And so because I don't want to make it harder for people to find the website, I must now go through all this and make sure that's proper, properly capitalized, only when it needs to be capitalized, properly spelled, and so forth for the, the sake of Google so that we can be easily found by the Internet. But that doesn't mean that I made a mistake in the beginning by doing this but it does mean I have to adjust and adapt to what must be done because of this technical thing that Google has come up with. And I think Google is being wrong. I think Google is wrong by doing this. They're following the will of the people that they think that if there's misspellings, 
or wrong capitalizations that the website is junk. And that's not proper thinking because somebody can have the best recipe that needs to be out there or the best exercise formula or the best teaching or the best instruction about something and have a misspelling that is accident or or they're not well-educated either one. I don't think that they should make these websites lower ranked based upon that. Amen. That's my opinion. Everybody can have their own opinion. We live uh, in a world where everybody can have their own opinion, and that's fine, and that's well, that's just my opinion. Let me uh, go over, see if I missed anything in my notes. Thanks. So that's all for the main teaching in the sermon, but I will give an instruction and a correction now concerning how to observe Passover. Previously, I've been teaching that on Passover day itself, that you don't need to rest on that particular day but rather starting at the morning time the next day after Passover that you begin your rest, being the first day of unleavened bread. And the scripture is clear that the first day of unleavened bread, rather than Passover, is a Sabbath, a commanded rest day. However, it also says, in the context of only dealing with the days of unleavened bread, and the Day of Atonement, only those particular two holidays out of the year that you should observe your Sabbaths, rest days, from evening to evening, or sunset to sunset. It's specific, it is specific to fast days. Day of Atonement, you're totally fasting in the seventh month of the year. 24 hours. And while you're fasting, you're resting. Because you're not eating, you don't want to be working. And it's from sunset to sunset so that when you get up in the morning, your stomach is already empty. But it's only 24 hours, not more than 24 hours, for the fast of Day of Atonement. So then when we look at the fast of unleavened bread, the only thing we're fasting from is levity not eat any cakes or pancakes or crackers that have leavening in it, baking soda and so forth. So it's still a fast, just not a total fast. So being a commanded fast, it again says from evening to evening. So even though Passover day beginning at morning of Passover is not a Sabbath, but when you get to that sunset on Passover evening, while you're taking that communion, what is it? It's a communion of unleavened bread. So you have begun your fasting at sunset. So therefore, you should also begin your Sabbath, your rest, on Passover day at sunset for 24 hours. 
for your rest days, for the days of unleavened bread, will be starting from Passover sunset until sunset the next day. And then the same thing with the last day of unleavened bread, it would be a rest day from sunset to sunset, ending on sunset of the last day. Even though the day of unleavened bread will continue to morning of the following morning, but the Sabbath itself, the rest itself, and the fasting itself begins and ends at sunset on the first and the last day. I will be correcting that in the calendars and on the website. So this is just more correction, more clarification, more teaching from Jesus. Jesus gave this to me in the early morning hours while I was laying in bed. He gave this to me that I was to instruct the people to start resting on Passover evening, starting at sunset for 24 hours. This was not any study of mine. This was God speaking to me and teaching me, and I may relay the message to you. And we'll continue to seek the voice of the Lord, all of us, and grow in knowledge and understanding and correct doctrine teaching and how to keep the holy days and how to live for the Lord and how to be in the center of his will at all times. Amen. And to close, I'm going to play that one song again. And as I play this song, or before I play this song, I want to thank everybody for listening today, for joining us, and for being part of this congregation. And if anybody has any questions about any of this, please feel free to email me. I have a couple of emails, different emails, where different people have uh, contacted me and asking questions. And I've not gotten around to answering your question, questions in this email yet. But I'll try to get around to your uh, emails later today or tonight or tomorrow, God willing. And I thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening today. We'll close with song page number 12, I Surrender All. Everybody please stand.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.